Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Isabel Millar, a PhD candidate in Lacanian psychoanalysis, cultural theory, and contemporary philosophy in the School of Arts, Culture, and Communication at Kingston University. Her research is on the later Lacan, artificial intelligence, and the body. Well, my background is philosophy. So I was initially interested in um, questions relating to uh, subjectivity and the challenges of how new technology was um, forcing us to think about the subject in different ways. Um, And for me, um, being interested in new um, trends in philosophy, as it were, in speculative realism and new materialisms, uh, there was something that I felt missing in these discourses, and it was precisely the psychoanalytic dimension. So um, for me, Lacan became a focus of my uh, research because it gave me something that nothing else uh, afforded me previously. For me, the the, the thing that I find most fascinating is the intersection um, between sex and um, artificial intelligence that we find in the figure of the sex robot. And um, it's a way that uh, I can, I use a sex bot as a, as a vanishing mediator um, between, uh, I suppose, philosophy and psychoanalysis, because uh Psychoanalysis is about knowledge of sex and philosophy is about knowledge of the concept. So when you put them together in this uh, figure of the sex bot, you get this very strange, bizarre um, object, which is it's an object and it's a concept and it's a symptom and it's, it's lots of things, really. And how did this first come about? How did you start getting interested in it? Um, because, well, I was writing on... My uh, training in psychoanalysis was um, largely through um, clinicians in the contemporary clinic. So I was taught a lot of theory from people who were practicing uh, analysts, but in the um, Larian field. So a lot of um, the concepts that I came to grips with um, of Lacan were via the later writings and teachings. Uh, So... I, I really kind of, um, I kind of went backwards, uh, started off with Miller, um, reading Lacan, and then of course Lacan reading Freud, um, which was a, I think an interesting way to do it because there were some very new, interesting new concepts in the Millerian field that haven't really been explored, um, in the context of wider conceptual questions in theory in general, for example, the hypothesis of ordinary psychosis, which is what the clinic works with at the moment. And so it was through reading and um, learning about the clinical applications of of some of these new concepts that I started to see how this was very relevant in terms of trying to think about subjectivity from a sort of more cultural, philosophical point of view. Uh, Yeah, and so the the sex bots, um, it's kind of, also something that has obviously come into popular discourse lately because everyone's asking about oh, what's the sex bot mean for humanity and I've heard a lot of people talking about it and I know there's lots of academics working on it 
but as so far I have I haven't heard anyone saying anything very interesting about it or sensible about it um, most of the conversations have been on a quite kind of uh, normative um, psychologizing level about what the site what the sex bot is what does it mean for human relations and what is you know what does the sex of the sex bot uh, mean and the problem is um, people are asking what that means to have sex with a robot when they haven't asked what it means to have sex with a human, and which is what psychoanalysis is about. Uh, and we still don't know what it is. That's the point. Yeah, I love this title of one of your papers. The sexual relation does not exist, but does my sex bot know? Yeah, exactly. Because this is, this is the thing to me that sums up um, what... What is what is happening when you're entering into uh, a relationship with a supposed AI, um, like in the film Ex Machina that I talk about in this paper, is this um, this question of knowledge, which is sort of um, it's staged uh, the, the 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 kind of um, the castration of the subject is staged in this their interaction with the uh, the cybernetic female in this film which is something which is a very familiar trope that we see in film of the male uh, human trying to get to grips with the the female robot. But particularly in the film Ex Machina, um, because they have to go through the Turing test and he is lured into her, into wondering what her desire is through their interactions. And she's sort of making him work for, for her she kind of fulfills the place of the hysteric subject by constantly asking him for knowledge, which he then has to give her in order for her to find out who she is. So she kind of exemplifies this cliched idea of the hysteric woman. Um, but in terms of knowledge, it shows us very in a very kind of simplistic but beautiful way um, the kind of epistemic drive that is at the root of this uh, of this non-existent sexual relationship between the, the the figure of the man and the figure of the woman played out in that film. I haven't seen that film, but now I'm going to have to watch it. Now you have to watch it, yeah. <laughs> and I also like how you called this like place the abyss, and then this company that makes these robots is called Abyss Creations. I know it's so weird because you you know I've, I've seen so many videos now of the the people who make these dolls and um and it's it's quite chilling really and um but what's fascinating is when uh you see some of the men talking about how they're relating to these objects um they are completely able to fulfill themselves sexually if not more with with this object and it would be very easy to say oh well they're because they're just you know they're just you know uh, pro projecting their fantasies onto this creature and, and so it's a perversion. Well, actually, uh, there's something more going on because the fact that you can more easily achieve a se sexual satisfaction with something that you believe doesn't exist behind uh, the, the imaginary level of it tells us a lot about the, 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 the normative ways that we have sex in the first place. That's a really good point. Yeah. Um, but I think also um, it's really important to to not just put it all put it all under the same kind of look at it at the same level that you know if if uh, the way that a woman would have sex with a robot is the same as the way that a man would have sex with a robot because 
absolutely not. They being used for completely different, completely different purposes as well. I Can think. you say more about that? Well, in the same way that we all have sex for different to for to achieve a different form of enjoyment, so does so we achieve a different form of enjoyment with a with a, a robot. Um, the 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 kind of in Lacanian circles this expression the non-existent sexual relationship which is almost a cliche for people who read Lacan is something that is not self-evident to people outside psychoanalytic circles but once I think you you think a little bit about what he means and I won't go into the graphs of sexuation here but the idea that um, the logical positioning of uh, enjoyment whether you have a masculine form of enjoyment or a feminine form of enjoyment, which of course is nothing to do with your body or whether you are a man or a female, biologically or genetically speaking, because psychoanalysis isn't interested in that specifically. Um, it tells it tells us a way of uh, shows us a way of um, understanding forms of enjoyment um, and how they don't correspond with each other. So. Uh, what a man wants when he's having sex with a woman is nothing like what a woman wants when she's having sex with that same man. And this this incompatible relationship, again, can be misinterpreted as a sort of um, banal statement about how men and women are, you know, have uh, incompatible and always their relationships break down. But it's something more ontological than that, um, that te- which is to do with a form of knowledge about sex that we ne- we never really have. And for people that don't know anything about the field, you mentioned like these two different professors or philosophers and they're kind of two different views about this issue. And then yours is kind of a different one from that. But could you maybe go into that a little bit for people? Um, sorry, but the, which which two different professors? The... Like the perspective of the, the bot being something that's going to be problematic and that shouldn't exist yeah. Yeah. versus... Versus the the idea that it's a, a therapeutic thing, mm-hmm. yeah, I think this is the problem because at the moment the 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 debate seems to fall between, on the one hand, yay, great, this is emancipatory, and now we all can enjoy ourselves in whatever way we like, and it's total freedom, and 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 furthermore, people also arguing that it's it could be used therapeutically, um, to for people who don't have a partner and who just want to feel that they have, you know, some form of intimacy with something or, and even further, people say, well, it's actually can be used to treat pathologies. Uh, you know, people are talking about it being used in, um, for paedophiles, for example, and it's, which is extremely problematic conversation, of course, maybe we won't go into it here, but, um, then, so that's this kind of positive side of it. And then on the negative side, you have, of course, people saying, well, um, this is just going to make men and women even more um, at odds with each other. It's going to increase misogyny. Women are going to be made into objects, and this will ultimately result in complete disintegration of civilization. And you know, we we must stop it at all costs. Um, I think neither of those things, those positions, are accurate. I think both can be true, but that's not really the point. Um, I think that what what the thing about a sex pot shows us, 
at the moment, at the level that we've got them now, is they're just showing us what the reality is, which is that it's very possible for humans, especially humans who have a mm, sort of masculine sexuality. Um, I'm saying this carefully because, as we know, people say, no, because I'm a woman and I want to have sex with a robot. Fine, you can. That's great. Um, that uh, having sex with a, with, a, with a robot enables them to enjoy in exactly the way that they want to enjoy, which is which is, is not a surprise. You know, most people are not going to be surprised by this idea as much as it may be disgusting to some people. Um, so I think that what's more interesting is to, to figure out what it tells us about the ways that that sexuality inherently fails, which is what the discovery of psychoanalysis is, is that sexuality fails. All that we can do is... is um, try and achieve some knowledge about what that form of failure is, which is what the the point of um, the clinic of psychoanalysis is, is to find out what that that unconscious knowledge is that you have. And then eventually, when you get to the point of supposedly discovering it, you realise there was nothing there in the first place because it's a knowledge that you can't possibly know. Um, and that's, you know, the point about the sex bot is it's almost just like a kind of caricature um, an embodiment of that ridiculous idea that you know if you have a, a fantasy about a woman the 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 kind of the semblant that is a sex bot which is literally covering up for the fact that there is nothing behind it a ridiculous exaggeration of a you know massive breasts and a perfect body that looks like no real woman in the world um is the is is the dream is the idea that you actually want to achieve that you can never actually get in reality And what do you tend to do in London? Like, is there a psychoanalytic scene that you're involved in or a philosophical scene? Or Yeah, so um, I'm part of Kingston University and um, I'm also involved with Birkbeck a lot. And both institutions are have kind of a lot of links to uh, Lacanian circles. So I am involved a lot in meetings with the Lacanian circles and also... The Laboratory for Lacanian Politics, uh, which is part of the New Lacanian School. Um, so yeah, there's lots of things going on around. Um, yeah. And what's that like, the laboratory? Um, it's a it's a it's a new group that's kind of started up um, with the intention of using uh, psychoanalysis um, in the Lacanian orientation to think and talk about political social issues. Um, in a in a in a way that's outside the clinic, so it doesn't just um, draw on psychoanalysts, but because I'm not a clinician, um, it also it kind of involves people f- from philosophy and politics and anyone who wants to join really who has an interest to to be able to kind of use the the tools of psychoanalysis to try and and mediate the horrific conditions of of civilization at the moment which is a difficult job but yeah i really feel that psychoanalytic thought can really help at this moment and that's why i do so much work to like have this podcast and host events and try to publish books with various kinds of writing like uh like i have a book that just came out recently that's specifically like lacanian views on uh, psychoanalysis and violence but i also have another book 
that's called Rendering Unconscious, which is kind of what the podcast spawned from that's about to come out, where I collect like really different views where it's like Lacanian psychoanalysis, but also just like any kind of psychology, there's behavioral therapy, there's poetry, just to kind of get more of an eclectic view, because my experience was that you know, I find all of this so helpful and interesting, but I felt like our circles were so small. And I really want to get the ideas out to a broader and broader audience. And yeah. even like within psychoanalysis, you know, like you said, the Malarians are very cut off from other Lacanians. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Jungians are very cut off from the Freudians and the Kleinians. Yeah. Everybody's kind of in their own camps, you know. And I really think that that's, that's too bad and that there should be more kind of cross-disciplinary discourse as much as we can instead of getting too hung up on the little points that's that that we disagree on you know yeah i agree and i think it's really um important to because obviously it's important to to be rigorous with the theory and and to not sort of bastardize it but at the same time often what happens in lacanian circles is that you know become so exclusive this little club where everybody has, speaks the same language and you're really trying to to do something important theoretically or politically, but yet you can't actually break out of that bubble because nobody else will understand you if you go out into the world and try and talk about with all of these this terminology. Um, so it's a, it's a question of trying to to get to to without watering it down to get other people interested in questions that are really important for us, especially now. You know, that's why, the, for example, the sex bot to me was a really good example of when psychoanalysis is essential because you can't talk about these kind of questions without psychoanalysis. Otherwise, you're chasing your tail. You know, the idea that you'd still be talking about sex as some taboo that we don't know anything about. It's like, well, actually, psychoanalysis has been knowing quite a lot about it more than any other discourse for over 100 years. And yet people still kind of misunderstand psych some mystical uh, mumbo jumbo, which is anything but. Um, so I think I think um, it's it's really important, yeah, to to try and disseminate ideas in a way that's engaging to people. Yeah, and I found that people really get it. You know, like I I often do things about the arts or the occult or something that's more like popular, and I find that you know when you present the ideas to people in, with something that's interesting to them, otherwise they really get it. You know, and they really engage with it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's true. I think. Um, it's really good to for psychoanalysis also to get in conversation with with other disciplines, with film, with with art, with you know performance, uh, and obviously philosophy, and 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 get some fresh air as well, and technology, you know. Yeah, there's a there's one guest that I had on. I guess it was just like six weeks ago, but I've been really like into the podcast this year. So I've done quite a few so far. Um, his name is Damian Patrick Williams, and he writes about machine consciousness and uh, intersections with like religious thought and this sort of thing. And he was really interesting to talk to. So I'm going to make sure that he listens to your episode. Oh, brilliant. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And vice I think, versa. Yeah. <laughs> I think, um, um, no, I, I know who you're talking about because I looked him up. And he sounds he sounds very interesting. Yeah, um, I I think that the tech technology aspect is is crucial um, and definitely crucial to my research. And it's this at the same time how you know psychoanalysis is a challenge to the question of the sex bot and, and philosophy. Also, technology is a challenge to psychoanalysis. Um, 
and it's forcing psychoanalysis to re-evaluate um, the stakes of some of its basic concepts. And, you know, the drives, for example, are things that are being having to be to, to morph into something else. Now we're trying to think about what would happen with advances in biotechnology, with um, how AI may become part of the biological body, for example. That's something that we haven't had to deal with yet. But it may be that quite in the near future, you know, like Black Mirror, we, we're going to start having um, chips implanted in us. The body will, will start to uh, circulate around different forms of uh forms of knowledge, different forms of um, enjoyment and different different drives, which uh, forces psychoanalysis not to just kind of fall into this general idea about, oh, technology is this this uh, product of capitalism and it's all forcing us to um, enjoy everything and be subjects of pure enjoyment, which, yeah, okay, that's interesting and the, the kind of the Zizekian angle, but there's something else that's going to happen when we really have to start talking about the cyborgs, that has been this kind of fantasy thing. And it's not a fantasy anymore, actually. Um, yeah, as Black Mirror shows us very well. Mm -hmm. And just how it's so embedded in our lives at this point. Like, I, I mean, I don't even remember what it was like before it was like this, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So exactly. I don't think psychoanalysis quite has a, a discourse around that quite yet. It's still like this kind of other... Thing that's invading but it's not that anymore it's like completely part of everything we do at this point yeah yeah and to think how fast it's moving that you know probably in a couple of years time we again going to be have we're going to look back to this conversation now and think oh that was very naive because we didn't see this was coming you know so quickly you can be out of date now when you're trying to talk about the stakes of humanity and especially you know the, the whole kind of cyber culture stuff uh, if you just read stuff from 10 years ago in cult cultural theory of people trying to hypothesize the cybernetic human, and they always get it wrong. They have these sort of very hyperbolic ideas about, oh, no, what are the new challenges? And 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 it's never the thing that you think it's going to be. We're, ne we're not cyborgs in the, thing we, in the way that we thought we were going to be. We're cyborgs in different ways. And, you know, it's very important, I think, to be very um, shrewd with these concepts and not just throw around this idea of oh, human post-human, the post-human is here, and we're all, you know, not humans anymore. Well, what, what, what were we? In, what were we before? What are we now? We, just, you know, psychoanalysis is very good at, at kind of breaking through all of this and saying, actually, hold on a minute, you know, there's something that was we we never really knew what we were in the first place. So let's figure out um, that before we start trying to imagine this new futuristic human, you know. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it goes a lot along with like the whole everything with gender that's been going on as well. And like, you know, all these different arguments that are just really banal of like, oh, what's biological and what's this or that. And it's like, but humans have never been just like some biological entity. Like the whole thing that makes humans humans is the fact that we build things and use tools and work in a different way and create our vision in the world. We don't just live in nature period we never have <laughs> exactly exactly and freud already talks about this prosthetic god in um civilization is discontents and that you know we 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 always creating these these auxiliary organs but but it never really makes us happy because it just we just circulate they just circulate around the drives constantly and, and we we never fulfill this dream of, of of omnipotence that we think we're going to get 
and that's exactly he was he was already talking about this this inherent um, problem with technology is that we don't know we don't really know what technology is you know it's a it's a way of extending our drives but how why why what what, what are we doing with technology where is it taking us you know mm-hmm. and where does where do you draw the line between technology and and um, the human which is obviously massive um, field within philosophy itself so how did you become interested in philosophy in the first place Oh, well, I, my undergraduate was philosophy, uh, so I um, actually my A levels were in philosophy, and yeah, so I I, I was interested in philosophy from for many years ago, and and then afterwards I took a um, a break and did some other things, and then I and then some years ago came across Slavoj Žižek, which I'm sure happens to a lot of people, and became interested in psychoanalysis and thought, oh. Actually, all the philosophy that I did seems much more interesting now because it's relevant to something that I can that I can actually get hold of, and and hence I I went back into uh, doing a master and then started my PhD, and it was through really the the connection between psychoanalysis and philosophy that um, yeah that I found was most engaging. Yeah, because I find this whole field, like you said, there's a whole part of philosophy that's dedicated to this idea of, like, what's technology and what's the human. This is something that I never really think about in my work because I'm very much, I've very much been just, like, a clinician, you know? And I didn't have a philosophy degree in graduate school. I had a PsyD, which is, like, a doctor in psychology, which is working in hospitals and this sort of thing. And then I went to analytic training after that. So I find that fascinating that there's an entire field that's dedicated to looking at these sorts of things yeah absolutely i mean um i i was quite interested i think part of my um spur to 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 take the technology question further i was reading bernard stiegler who is a french philosopher of technology and so he he's a he's a freudian but not a lacanian and he was he writes about sort of the originary technicity of the human and um he 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 talks about the sort of very essence of humanity as being the technical the technical being you know as a, um and from from that idea i i suddenly realized i was reading him and thinking hmm he's he's very sort of lacanian in a funny way but then i thought well actually Lacan could also benefit a lot from engaging with some some philosophers on the question of technology as well. So hence where I kind of put the two to, two and two together. Mm-hmm. I think it's a lot a lot to be said actually about both things. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel that this is a really important intersection. Uh, so I'm so glad to have found you and going to keep following this work. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, who do you like to read? Well. I'm afraid I'm very deep in Lacan at the moment and I'm just just chewing through all the seminars because everything's coming out now in English that wasn't there before. Um, so, yeah, just, just reading the main seminars, to be honest. And I, I'm trying to, because I always have a, I want to read everything, but the problem is, well, in, certainly in the first year of my PhD, I, I read too much and then I got really confused because I didn't know where to stop and then ended up, not knowing what my PhD was about anymore, I realised if you want to know something really well, you have to just for a moment stick with one person and get hold of that before then you can start playing around with other things. So I'm, I'm quite sort of, I'm quite religiously Lacanian. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a task. 
yeah. to get through yeah. the seminars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Are there any sorts of like study groups or anything? Um, yeah, I mean, we. I often go to. I'm. Um, um, well, often I've been going over to uh, Ghent in Belgium uh, for a few events. So I was at the. We did one on um, a reading group on Seminar Twenty last year, and then this year we're going to do Seminar Twenty Three. So that will be really, really fun. And, um, yes, they're always led by very, very brilliant scholars who take us through the text slowly. It's quite funny to have your little nerdy group of people who are reading these seminars because it's like, oh, you're a person who I can talk about with this. Like, I can't talk to anyone else but you. (laughs) So it's it's quite a little a nerdy group yeah but yeah but the guys over at Ghent are great that's like Stin van Hulen and yeah yeah, yeah they're fantastic yeah no their great. books are fantastic yeah 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 I recommend no, them a lot they're brilliant and they kind of have um done a lot of work to to um making Lacan accessible and relevant which is so important because you know I think thanks to them we've seen a, a resurgence of interest and also not just in the humanities, but of course in the clinic of um, psychoanalysis to, to make it something that has something to say in the, in a in an environment where it's very anti-psychoanalytic, where everybody wants CBT or um, neuroscience, and nobody trusts anymore the um, the subject of speech. And and what they've done is to try and really hold out for like well this is this is important we've got to make sure that it doesn't get lost um so yeah they they do some important stuff Mm -hmm. and there's a quite good scene in london too i was in new york for 10 years and we had a lot of different schools of psychoanalysis there uh just different institutes but that was the thing they were all very divided like i said earlier um, so we kind of got a group together that we called Das Unbehagen, where we kind of had different people from all the institutes who were also interested in talking to other others. <laughs> um, and we kind of cross-pollinated everything, and that worked out really well. But in London, they, they have, like, Darian Leaders there, and he's got, like, a psychoanalytic program, and uh, Bunnell University uh, has a psychoanalytic program. So it has more than most places, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's um, it's it's gaining traction again. I mean, at Kingston, um, we had for a couple of years, we were very lucky to have uh, an, a master's um, program in psychoanalysis, which had you know teachers uh, who were practicing clinicians coming in to to teach uh, to teach theory, which was a luxury. You know, we had um, Veronique Verus who came and and taught us theory, and that was fantastic because you're getting it from somebody who knows it so well and it, rather than you know and of course it's brilliant to have the the um the clinic uh, the lacanian theory in the context of um the humanities uh, at large which for example we've got taught by scott wilson as well who is um is a very interesting uh, thinker and writer um so to have both you know the clinical and the the cultural um entrance into Lacanian thought is is really really good actually yeah and I'm very interested to hear like what what it's like in these different cities around the world because I love the idea of having more international dialogue even like we started in New York like within the different institutes but now like I've talked to someone in Toronto and Wyoming and California and even someone in Utah and, and now now I've just moved to Stockholm a couple of months ago so now I'm kind of starting to meet people over here in Europe more 
Um, and I love the idea of having sort of like loose international kind of network that's not like through like the international psychoanalytic because I'm very Lacanian in that way. I don't like, I don't want to be involved with the IPA. I went yeah. to an institute that was, you know, IPA and, and the American psychoanalytic and I saw all the problems that Lacan was talking about, you know, it really yeah. felt like it was very deadening. They were very controlling and it's not good for psychoanalytic formation. But I love the idea of being able to talk to different people with different theoretical orientations and in different uh, steps of their development um, yeah. and have more communication that way. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's really important. I mean, I'm hoping that it's there's going to be me, me more traction um, with Lacanian psychoanalysis in in um, certainly in London because. I think that people are realizing that we need it <laughs> and it's and it's we can't deal with the problems that we're having in civilization without using it and and thinking harder and taking more time to think and and the I think the certainly reason that I love Lacan and I'm sure lots of people will agree is that he's not easy and he forces you to think and to work and you know he he shows you that if there you know there, there it's not an easy answer because if if there's an easy answer then you're probably not asking the right question and you have to keep keep going and the problem with today is that most people want an easy answer most people want a solution why do i feel like this why is my life horrible why is the world horrible and people give you you know you get a solution from you either get it from a a, a mental um mental health response or you get it from the media or you get it from politics or you get it from anything that just gives you something to go here you go this is the reason why you're sad or angry or you know and like on teachers there isn't going to be an easy answer but that's good and you need to keep going and I think more people need to get used to the fact that it's there's not an easy answer no meme on Instagram is going to tell you that you're wonderful and everything's going to be fine. It's shit and you're going to suffer. But that's great because that's how you are going to learn more about everything. Mm, so, that's yeah. life. That's life. <laughs> yeah. We're all here in it. No, yeah. it's very true. And that's the thing I like psychoanalysis about uh, working like in the clinic is like, you're not going to, like, my patients look at me and like, I'm not going to give you the answer. I don't have the answer. You have to figure it out, you know. <laughs> I'll ask you questions or, like, point point things out here and there to kind of help you figure it out. But, like, I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and I think, too, like you said, like, people want these easy answers, but they yeah. actually... They don't really, they think they want that, but people are ha much happier when they're working. People like working and they like challenges and that yeah. sort of thing. And I think everybody would feel a lot more, uh, feel a lot better off if they were more challenged and weren't just taking these quick fixes because they yeah. don't work. Yeah. No, it's true. It's true. Yeah. And I, I've gotten very used to like allowing people to just feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Like we can just sit here. Yeah. That's fine too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and to be able to to get come to terms with the fact that nobody else has uh, has a knowledge that that will give you anything that you think that you need, and ultimately you're going to have to be responsible for it yourself. Which psychoanalysis, 
you know, psychoanalysis is not a moralizing discourse. It doesn't tell you what's right or wrong. It tells you that you have to figure out what you think is right or wrong. And that's ultimately your responsibility, which is very terrifying and is, a, is probably a horrible experience to go through, um, but a necessary one. Have you been in psychoanalysis? Uh, good question. No, because I don't want to. No, <laughs> I, I have. I have um, bit, tried um, and started the process, but because I'm doing, you know, doing psychoanalysis theoretically and in the middle of my PhD, I tried it and I thought actually I need to choose one or the other at the, at this moment because it's too much to go through your analysis and to be trying to do all this theoretical work because the two get confused. And then you end up asking your analysts about seminar 23 and it's like, this is not the time and I'm here to do that. So I think as well, it is about the right time to do it as well. If you ever want, you know, I might, I might decide, Oh, I never, I never want to be an analyst or I never want to be in an, an analysis. Uh, it's not for everyone either. I wouldn't say that everyone should be an analysis because there's a whole other political dimension to psychoanalysis, of course, which is that it, it, it can't be, not everyone has the access to it or has the means to be able to do it. So there's lots of other questions there as well. Is there anything that you want to talk about that we haven't touched upon? I still, I keep coming back to this, um, this sex bot thing because um, I think it's, it's so fascinating. Like I was... Obviously, looking up videos about um, sex bots on YouTube and stuff and seeing always I made the mistake of reading the comments underneath, which actually I, I need to do because it's very interesting to find out what pe what people are saying about it. And it's so horrible and horrific because you just see all of these men saying, yeah, I'm allowed to swear. Mm -hmm. Just like, oh, yeah, fuck you, bitches. You know, you can, we don't need you anymore. Now you're just obsolete and we can just, um, we just fuck these dolls because that's what we really want. And, you know, and you think, okay, this is not one or two people. This is like thousands and thousands of men, like, um, voicing this, this absolute, like, horror about, about real women. And the thing is, it's like, it's such a weird, the logic behind it is so weird because the, the, the men want the women to know that they want to replace them with something that is exactly looks like them, but is not them. But then we don't want you anymore. So what is it that you want? Of a, what is it that you wanted about a woman? Why why just not have a woman then? Why do you want like that? Sounds like a banal thing, but the logic is interesting because it's kind of talking about saying something that saying that you want something that you never really had, which is which is basically you know very psychoanalytic in itself you know there's sort of a primordial loss of something that was never really there so you think what what what's happening here why why are there why are there so many unhappy men why are they so why do they hate women so much um which is not really what my phd is about it's more like a side note but but it is it is terrifying really because it's not it's not one or two men i mean this is huge this is something that you know men really 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 fucking hate women a lot of men really fucking hate. in a way that women just don't hate men that like the the the, the myth that all oh, feminists all hate men and you know there's a complete fucking myth because of course everybody knows that's not true but the disgust that men have for women is something truly like incredible and and this is a thing that we need to talk about mm. i think it has true. to do with their mother 
Well, yeah. But why? But why do they hate their mothers so much? What do they hate their mothers more now than they used to? I don't know. I don't think so. I just think they're getting more opportunity to talk about it. Yeah, I think it's just a very, very, very infantile way of being when they were completely helpless and their mother had all the power and Mm. they just can't seem to deal with it and they they just lash out every turn i mean it's a very simplistic way of putting it but i think that's what's really at the core yeah i wonder if they if they i mean yeah again it's a stupid question but i wonder if if they're if it's worse than it used to be if men hate women more than they used to hate women i don't know but it, but it, you'd certainly you'd certainly would think so if you went look at any sort of um, social media that has a reference to women and sex. I mean, the comments just tell you everything about this hatred, this absolute disgust, and you just think, how, how, how is it possible that we're that we just still churn out this kind of yeah? Um, but again, it's not really my concern, I suppose. But um, it, it's always. It's always there with psychoanalysis that you that you have to ask these questions, but um, I don't want to get bogged down by having to to you know make a sort of feminist intervention in something that is actually a lot more complicated than that. Yeah, but it's a real issue. Yeah, it's a real issue, and I think it's very. I think it's very. Diff- it's it's always going to be very difficult to ever get to the root of that because I don't think women can deal with the idea of like this hatred towards the mother I don't think men can deal with the idea of this hatred towards the mother I don't I think people have a really hard time like understanding that you could like really love and really hate someone in this very basic basic way and I think it's too much for people to wrap their heads around most of the time yeah and it's like so yeah so fundamental (laughs) and I don't know if we're ever going to get there yeah (laughs) but yeah but I but you know but then do 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 you just say okay well in that case let's just create loads of um let's just create loads of artificial intelligences that can be can can perform the desire of people in a completely personalized way where you can just completely uh fulfill all of your rage and whatever or whatever you know banal thing that you want to have with your sexual partner once you get to that point where you're personal where you're individualizing everyone's kind of um sexuality what happens after that i I mean that's a question i find interesting that what would happen to to sex completely if we just allow everyone to have their own solution that you just have a ready-made answer to it you don't have to do it for yourself because it's just there you say what is what is it that you fancy oh here it is this is what you get whether it's a male robot or a female robot you know is this what what would happen after that i just think it's it just blows my mind like i don't know (laughs) yeah and i think it's a good point too that you brought up close to the beginning with the idea that it really shows what people are kind of doing anyway. Like, people are enacting their own thing on everybody else anyway, or on their partner anyway, but there's another person there. And so, like, there might be this mismatch that you can't meet, but there's also, like, repercussions and things happen. So what happens if you can just enact it on something and never have anything come back? 
Yeah. I don't know that that would be good. I don't know, though. I don't I don't know. I don't even know what that would be like. Well, I mean, this is, again, why Lacan's so useful, because he basically teaches us that, you know, this the anxiety of the other person's desire is the thing that's most unbearable, is that we can't we can't bear the fact that we don't know what the other person wants. And um, the idea of a sex bot is brilliant because you don't have to. You don't have to have that um, anxiety. It just takes it all away and allows you to be completely autonomous in that situation. Um, but, yeah, but but again, you know, from a more kind of philosophical and strictly theoretical um, perspective, it's also very interesting to think about um, the idea of artificial intelligence in relation to, to knowledge um, and how the the whole fantasy around AI is 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 sort of a very psychologizing idea of what human uh, consciousness is. Of course, in psychoanalysis, you don't talk about consciousness as such, but the idea that um, you know that that, a, that an AI can reach this point in the singularity where it uh, surpasses the human and then becomes um, omnipotent, and the and the human is thereby uh, obsolete um which is a which is a very which is a fantasy that's kind of based on this idea of the hysteric and the you know this hysteric subject versus the master you know questioning always the master you know tell me tell me what i am tell me what i am and then no that's not it no that's not no that's not it and then the fantasy the ai will eventually turn around and go you're you don't know anymore because i know better than you you know and therefore the master is kind of like relieved of the pressure like oh thank god for that i can get i can go home and like you know watch the telly but is it kind of this is this idea of like ai being this quest in to enable us to suddenly you know we've reached this point where in the future where ai is going to be able to take over it's such a fantasy you know because we don't whilst it may happen the the the, the presumptions are all based on a a, a, a very um, psychologistic idea of what humans are and doesn't have any idea about what the unconscious is or what desires are. The idea that we know what we d- we want, we don't. So how would an AI know what they want? You know, we don't even know what we want. So how do they know? That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the things you think about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I just think that that this is a really interesting thing with the the idea that the AI is like, you know, in Black Mirror, for example, you have the AI that that you that's implanted in you and can uh, can monitor your desires and preempt your desires and act upon them in a way that supposedly is what you want. Of course, that asks this whole question of what is it that the AI thinks that you want and what is it that you secretly want or you know. The idea of acting in your own interest or against your interests, which, you know, you, you know, we never act within uh, in our interests. That's the whole point. Otherwise, you know, God knows what we'd do if we actually ever did act in our own interests. That would be interesting. <laughs> yeah, and this is really already happening, I guess, with all the algorithms and everything that the internet's turned into. Yeah, this is very. This is a very, very relevant field. What do you think about this idea of Damien's that he brought up, where he doesn't call it AI like artificial intelligence; he calls it machine consciousness, because he said if it's like intelligent, then it has its own kind of 
Like, it's not artificial anymore once it's intelligent. What do you think of this kind of argument? Yeah, I think that's that's a very good point because um, exactly uh, the, the problem with people when they talk about artificial intelligence is that what's real intelligence, human intelligence, that you don't really know the answer to anyway because it's modelled on a metaphor of, a, of a, a computational metaphor for human consciousness, which is not how human consciousness works. Um, parts of it, yes, but not all of it. And we don't, we don't know. We don't know how, how human intelligence works. So I think it's much more accurate to talk about um, the machine as, yeah, I mean, what, what's the term that he used? Well, machine consciousness or intelligence. Exactly, which is that it's not something that we can't, we can't model it on something that we already know because we don't know what it is. So it's a different type of, of thinking. Um, which is probably a better way to begin. Yeah, I think so. Well, all this is super interesting and I think really, really important with the times that we're in. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, the the, the the concept of extimacy is a very um, um, sort of fundamental one for me with, with regards to this question, which is a kind of like um, the the emblematic concept that Jacqueline Miller takes from Lacan and the idea of this this the the extimacy being the the thing that is most uh, intimate to you is actually exterior it's actually the thing outside of you that you can never actually have which is basically the structure of the whole of the Lacanian oeuvre um, and this he has a, he has a whole seminar on it Jacqueline Miller um, but what is what is very useful to take away from it is is to to think about technology as as an extimate thing as opposed to uh, something that's completely separate from us. It's something that is comes from a place that we don't really understand, but is very very intimate at the same time, and in the same way that sex is that extimate thing, so is technology. Um, and therefore, it will be. It's very important to approach this in this new era when we're getting sex and technology are getting all mixed together. To use this idea of extimacy, which forces us to remember that these exterior things are actually the most interior at the same time. No, that wasn't. A, that was a term that I wasn't familiar with. That's super interesting. So that's your that's your dissertation is extimacy sex box between fantasy and ontology. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to say any more about that? Um, well, yeah, I mean, ecstasy, uh, ecstasy, ecstasy is a concept that first comes up in, well, that only is mentioned by Lacan in uh, Seminar 7. Extimité is the obviously the French. And um, it's it's in relation to his, his um, formalizations of the real at that point in his uh, teachings. And the the idea that ecstasy is some is a it's a it's a it's a cover for the real, which is a way of of covering up for the whole in um, symbolization, which which is a very traumatic thing. So um, there are different ways of covering up for, for it, which then uh, Jacqueline Miller will 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 talk about more extensively in his uh, seminar later on in the 80s but um you know he uses this idea that 
extimacy is uh, you see the structure of extimacy through, for example, um, the religious cover, which is a way of placing the the, the intimate outside oneself, and um, and this also happens with all different kinds of formulations of human human kind of. Uh, relationships and the way that we put our most intimate things outside which the sexual relation is this way of trying to um to to sew together something that isn't really there and make up for this lack and this hole that we are forever trying to plug up um so yeah it's it's um it's an important concept but also quite a straightforward one because it basically just uh, shows you that psychoanalysis is not about a, an unco- an sort of um, a depth to be uncovered, but more more a external structure that can be examined out in the open. You know, if you start to realise that we're not um, we're not just creatures who have all these secrets, but we're creatures who create these secrets in order to form a social bond with each other hence why we have all of these rules of conduct and how how to administer our different modes of jouissance, our different modes of enjoyment. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a conversation with Isabel Millar. For more, please visit her website, hystericsdiscourse.wordpress.com or my website, drvanessasinclair.net. Pushing, pushing, pushing.